You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, verse 41, let's look at it, okay? Verse 41. What does it say? It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Jesus asked them a question. Now let's think about the background here, okay? What have we seen over and over in these last few chapters? If you've been tracking with us, chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 22, what have we seen? What's been a major theme? A major theme, has it been that the religious establishment has a soft heart towards Jesus and they're just hanging on his every word and just want to receive? No. It's been the opposite. They come with accusations. They come trying to trick him. They come trying to back him into a corner. They come to test him. It's the opposite of humility and teachability. And we can see that their questions come fueled with pride. Fueled with pride. They come on the offensive, and they're trying to put Jesus on the defensive. Well, today, if you look at verse 41, you'll see that they're going to flip the scenario. Jesus is going to flip the scenario. Jesus is going on the offensive. He becomes the questioner and not the recipient of the questions. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is going to embody 1 Peter 5, verse 5, which says this, All of you clothe yourselves with humility. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now let's see Jesus enact this, okay? So verse 41, Jesus asked them a question. Saying, who do you think, or sorry, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the Pharisees, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? This is tricky. This is hard to understand. This is one of those passages in the Bible, if you're reading it on your own, you might just be tempted to gloss over it and just move on. Because it's hard to understand really what's going on here, okay? So for us to understand what's going on here, we're just going to walk through it piece by piece. I'm going to have to explain Uh, a little bit more, just kind of the the nuts and bolts of this text, maybe more than I would usually do, more heavy on explanation. So I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to apply it to us in our lives in 2021, and then we'll be done, okay? So let's dive in. All right, so Jesus is asking them the questions now. Look at it again, verse 41, end of verse 41. Jesus asks them a question, 42, saying, 
what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, what's important here is that word, the Christ. What does that mean? To Jewish, ancient Jewish ears, that means the Messiah, the anointed one, okay? That's what Jesus is talking about here. The one that the Jewish people were looking to, to come, the promised Messiah, who would come and kick out the oppressors, the Romans, and reestablish the nation of Israel as, as the dominant political force in the world, where they would rule and reign with Yahweh as their God. So when he says the Christ here in verse 42, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's thinking about. That's what they're thinking about, okay? That's really important. So he says to them, look at the question. He says, whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah? Whose son is the Christ? Whose son is the anointed one? The one you're longing for year after year after year. Where does he come from? What's his lineage? Tell me about his family tree. That's the setup to the questions that Jesus is going to pose here to the Pharisees. And so what do they say? What does it say? Look at what it says. They responded, or they said to him, the son of David. Good answer. Biblically speaking, great answer, right? The prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, and I won't walk through them all this morning. You could look to 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, and many other places. It says that the Messiah would come from the lineage of King David, the line of David. And that's, so that's why they respond with the son of David, okay? And if you think back to chapter 1, if you have a paper Bible, you can just flip back to chapter 1. You'll see a big genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And what Matthew's doing painstakingly is showing his Jewish audience that, yes, Jesus comes from the line of Abraham and David. Because Matthew knows, the author of this text this morning, the author of chapter 1, right? He knows that's really important for his Jewish audience. He's trying to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why chapter 1 has that genealogy connecting Jesus to David, okay? So everyone's on the same page thus far. Jesus and his questioners, or, or, or Jesus and those who, who he's questioning. But now Jesus is going to turn up the heat, okay? And he's going to humble these men who think that they're experts in the Bible. Look at verse 43. Okay, he says, yep, son of David, the Messiah is the son of David. Everybody's, everybody's clear. He said to them, verse 43, how is it then that David, in the spirit, meaning inspired by God, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? All right, so that's a lot, okay? So let's figure this out. What is Jesus doing here? It's important for us to understand this because this is the most quoted psalm 
in all of the New Testament. This is the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. So we need to figure out what's going on here. Jesus, what he's doing, it kind of sounds like a riddle, or, or confusing at least. All right, so let me explain. You'll see in your Bible, I'm not sure if it's, it's, it's presented this way maybe in your worship guide, if you're looking at the worship guide, but you'll see it's indented in your Bible. And what that means is he's quoting from the Old Testament. And Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. And Psalm 110, track with me here, is, is a messianic psalm, like a prophecy of the Messiah, written by King David. That's what Jesus said, right? How is it that David said, in the Spirit, and then he quotes Psalm 110, okay? So this is Old Testament King David talking, and let me reword it, okay, so it maybe can make a little sense. David is saying in Psalm 110 that Jesus is quoting here. Read, read along with me. The Lord, like, meaning the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, okay? The Lord said to my Lord, someone that David is calling his Lord. So it's like David is recounting a conversation that he heard between God, the God of Israel, And, and he's talking to someone. What does he say to this someone? Well, he says to this someone, sit at my right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So putting enemies under your feet, that's me messianic language. That's Messiah language. All the Old Testament Pharisees would have agreed. The Jewish people saw this Psalm 110 it's not just being about some normal Old Testament king that would have enemies and, and fight them, but rather about the Messiah. So Jesus knows this. How is it that the Lord God of Yahweh can say to someone else that David calls his Lord the Messiah? How does that work? That's what Jesus is asking these guys. It's hard enough for us. It's hard for them. How is it that David can call someone Lord who is his son? See, here's the key. In Jewish thought, if you're the father, you're superior. Everyone who comes after you in your lineage is a son or daughter of you, whether it's, you know, actual first-generation son or grandson or granddaughter or great-great-great-great-grandson, granddaughter. They flow from your lineage, so that means that you are superior. You don't call them Lord. That's what Jesus is getting at here. The son never lords anything over the father. That's just standard understanding for Jewish people at the time. And so the question that Jesus poses here, you can try to track with it here. I think you can get it, is that David is calling someone Lord who is his son. See that? The Lord said to my Lord, David, talking about my Lord. And then it's this messianic language. 
How is it that David calls someone Lord who is his son? So there must be something really unique going on here. And he's asking the Pharisees, this is the point, that are coming in their pride to him over and over again, as we've seen in the book of Matthew. You guys are so prideful. Can you explain this to me? That's what he's doing here. How does this work, Pharisees, with all of your Bible knowledge? And they got nothing. Mouths closed. But we benefit from the whole of the Bible. And we have the benefit of seeing the Trinitarian nature of our God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God in three persons, one God in three persons. We know the answer to this riddle that Jesus is posing to his opposition because God has revealed it to us. Let me just listen to this quote. So we have to answer, so we have the answer to Jesus' question about the Christ. Whose son is he? He is the son of David, but he has dual paternity. He's also the son of God. He's God's servant and our king. He's the son of man and the son of God. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of baby Jesus, but we must remember that baby Jesus is King Jesus. He's a man, a son of Mary, and a son of David, but he, is, but he has another father. He is the son of God, our Lord and King. So we have the benefit of knowing that, because the Bible explains that to us beyond the bounds of this text. The Pharisees couldn't answer that. They couldn't figure it out. So what is Jesus trying to accomplish here? That's the big thing that I want us to see and walk away from. He isn't in this passage just coming out and saying to them, hey guys, I'm the Messiah. Check me out. That's not what he's doing. I think what he's doing is basically very simple. He's just trying to humble these guys. He's just trying to humble these guys who come to him over and over again in their, in their pride. He, he's showing his challengers the limits of their understanding. And then look at 46. This is the punchline to this whole section. This is the end of chapter 22. And anytime there's like a, a summary statement, it's always, almost always a good time to pay attention to what the author says. It's the last thing he says in this section. What does he say? Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It's like Jesus is saying to them indirectly, guys, why all the resistance to me? You don't know how to understand the Bible like, like I do. If you can't answer this question that I'm posing to you, maybe there should be a bit more humility that flows from you towards me. It's like Jesus is saying, I know how David could say these things because I'm the one he was pointing towards. But you don't. 
Maybe there's room for more humility towards me. Maybe it's time for you to listen to me. See, that's implicitly what Jesus is trying to do for his opponents. Just humble them. Just humble them. So, so what do we see? What do we see this morning? We see that Jesus is the ultimate interpreter of God's word. Those who question him in their pride, their mouths will be closed. Let me say that again. We see that Jesus is the ultimate one who interprets God's word. Those who question him in their pride, their mouths will be closed. That's what 40, verse 46 shows us, right? Let me just give you a quick aside here that's a little off the, the path of this text, but I think it's really important. Pay attention to how Jesus deals with the Old Testament. Pay attention to how Jesus deals with the Old Testament. Like many of us think the Old Testament is hard and weird and, and maybe not our preference. And, and I get that. I get that. It is hard and weird sometimes. Many years ago, we did a whole summer series on hard texts from the Old Testament. Just weird, strange texts from the Old Testament. We preached them because we wanted to show that all of it is God's word and it all points to King Jesus as the culmination. But, but I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't blush with the Old Testament. Not once. He quotes the Old Testament constantly, just in the book of Matthew. But a good exercise for us as we want to be good students of the Bible would simply be just to read the Gospels one time all the way through. You could easily do it in a day or two. And just pay attention to how Jesus handles the Old Testament. Does he apologize for it? Does he question it? He might reinterpret it sometimes because he has the right to do that. He's the ultimate interpreter of Scripture. But Jesus doesn't blush at the Old Testament. I think it's just important to notice that. So take note of that in the future as you're reading the Gospels, all right? Look at verse 46 again. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So in light of what we've seen in this text, I, I want to just close with a, with a warning and an encouragement, okay? A warning and an encouragement. First, the warning. If we come in pride to Jesus, just like the Pharisees, anyone who comes in pride to Jesus, ultimately our mouths will be stopped. It might not happen right now, but it will eventually happen. Like, death is the ultimate form of having your mouth closed, right? Christopher Hitchens, famous antagonist to Christianity. A lot of you have heard of Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens, I don't make light of this. In all seriousness, Christopher Hitchens, his mouth is stopped. He's dead. There is no mocking of our God anymore from him. 
His mouth has been closed. But see, what does the Bible say about our God? The Bible says, Psalm 19, the heavens declare, the heavens speak the glory of God. God has not stopped speaking. You just got to look to the beauty of the blue and the white here in our sky. That's declaring something. That's speaking something to us right now. Creation. Praise God that we can be outside, right? And see what God has made. It's declaring. See, God doesn't stop speaking. But we, our mouths eventually are closed. All of us, when it comes our time to die. Job, in the Old Testament, is the ultimate example of this. Job, Job suffered horribly. You can go read the book of Job. It's, it's really important for us. But just a real quick summary, Job, Job suffered horribly. The loss of his property, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his children. And there's a lot we could say about the book of Job, but one of the things we see is that ultimately by the, toward the end of the book of Job, he comes to God and just basically calls God to account. And he questions God's goodness, he questions God's justice, he questions everything. And we can relate to that, right? We can relate to that. When your day of calamity comes, sometimes it's hard to think clearly, spiritually speaking. I know what that's like. And that's what Job experiences. A calamity like no one in the, here in this parking lot has ever experienced. And he calls God to account. Like, God, how dare you? Basically, he says, God, I demand an answer from you. Why? And so... Finally, God comes to Job after chapter after chapter of Job wondering what in the world is going on. God, how could you ultimately do this? And God never gives Job a direct answer. But he does show him the depth of his finitude. He shows him very clearly how limited his understanding is. It's such a good spiritual discipline for me to read these last few chapters of the book of Job. I commend it to you. But God shows up in the whirlwind and speaks directly to Job. And he says to Job, this is a scary phrase in the Bible, brace yourself like a man and I will question you. So you've been questioning me Kind of like the Pharisees questioning Jesus, and God comes to Job and he says, okay, I'm going to ask the questions now, just like Jesus starts asking the questions. And he says to Job, he basically gives him a zoological tour. It's kind of interesting. But he basically says, you see that deer in the forest? Can you explain to me exactly how it is? That that deer in the forest, year after year, survives 
feeds itself, reproduces. Job, can you, can you see the mountains? Can you see the waters? How I say to the waters, this far and no farther. Job, can you explain to me how I am sovereign over all of creation? Can you explain to me ultimately how creation works, how I flung the stars in the sky? And at the end of this questioning over and over again for a few chapters, the Bible says, very similar to verse 46 of our text, hand over mouth. And Job says, I'm done. I got nothing. I'm, I'm ready now to humble myself. Even in the midst of this calamity, I've seen your greatness. Your greatness is greater than my calamity. And I'm ready to humble myself and, and, and be quiet. My questions are done. In light of the greatness of who you are, even in the midst of my suffering, I will humble myself. And here's what's beautiful. As Job humbles himself, you read the last few chapters, what does God do? He rewards it. He rewards it. He gives grace to the humble. So what do we learn? What's the warning? If we, if we question the Father, if we question the Son, if we question the Holy Spirit from a place of pride, just like the Pharisees in our text, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when our, our mouth will be closed. It might not be till we're, till we're dead, but it will be if we come from a place of pride. Because what does the Bible say? God opposes the proud. Jesus is going on the offensive. Jesus is opposing these Pharisees questioning him. And he closed their mouth. That's not a comfortable place to be. You can ask Job. He couldn't handle the relentless questions from the Lord. He was ready to humble himself finally. But here's the deal. The uncomfortable place doesn't have to be for any of us. That's what's so beautiful about God's promises in his word. There's a better way to go that he commends to us. He says, I oppose the proud, but it doesn't have to be that way. Listen, I give grace to the humble. And there's so many examples. We're going to go beyond our text here for a second. There's so many examples of Jesus dealing with humble questioners. And he shows them grace. He doesn't beat them over the head. So there's a way to question God from pride, and there's a way to question God from humility. Wisdom knows the difference. Your heart knows the difference. But let me just show you one account from Jesus' life as an encouragement to show that there's a way to question from humility and see a reward. There was a day, you can read about this in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus' disciples brought to him a boy that was demon-possessed. And his father came along with this boy. And Jesus says, how long has this been going on? And the, and the father says, 
You know, it's been going on for, for a while, since he was little. And this demon is tormenting him, and the demon leads him to, to inflict self-harm. And then the father just says, if you can do anything. Like, that's a question. Like, I'm not sure if you can do it, but if, right, if you can do anything. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And listen to how the father responds. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Is that pride or is that humility? That's humility. I believe, but I'm weak. Would you help me? I still see some unbelief swirling around in there. Would you help me? I humble myself before you and I ask, would you help me? And what happens? Jesus responds to that humility. He rewards that humility and immediately heals this boy, casts out the demon, restores this suffering child to life. So the dad had a question, right? The dad had a question. If you can, if you can, I'm not sure. There's a question mark in my mind. But we see he didn't have a hard heart toward Jesus. And Jesus corrects him. And he doesn't respond with pride. He responds with humility. The father humbles himself, confesses his trust in Jesus, asks for help to believe. To believe better. And Jesus rewards it. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So I want that. I want to commend that to you this morning as the opposite of what we saw in our text with the Pharisees. Like when we humble ourselves before God, it's just a matter of time and he will lift us up. It might not even be until the final resurrection, but there will be a day of finally being lifted up when you humble yourself and trust God. Trust the message of the gospel. But I just want us to stand in awe of how amazing the grace of our God is. The whole, the whole scene this morning, again, it just embodies 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And let me just end with a personal testimony. Like, I've, over and over again in my life, I've never once humbled myself and regretted it. Never once. That doesn't mean that Christians are called to be doormats, right? But what I mean here is that when there's a chance to to think more highly of myself or to pursue selfish ambition or to like harden my heart and not want to ask for forgiveness. I've never once regretted going the other way from those things. Humbling myself. I've never once regretted it. God is true to his word. But man, the times 
when I've been prideful, the times when I've had a hard heart toward the promises of God's word, man, I, I can tell you stories about wish, wishing I could take those back. But praise God for his graciousness to us. Like when we simply go the opposite way of the Pharisees that we see in our texts, who have their mouths closed and cast ourselves on his mercy and humbly admit our need, and God loves to meet you in that humble confession. Let me just commend a prayer to all of us. Like God loves to answer and receive this kind of a prayer. And let's just close this morning. I'm going to pray it out loud, and you can pray this along with me in your heart if you want. Let's do this. Let's pray. God, I've sinned against you and others in my pride. I don't want to be the hard-hearted Pharisee. I want to be like the father with a son needing healing. Help my unbelief and my pride. Help me taste the promise of humility. You are God and I am not. I trust you and want to find my greatest joy, not in selfishness, but rather selflessness. Thank you for your selflessness that died for me in my sin. Thank you for your mercy that you displayed at the cross. May it humble me more deeply. And give glory to you more, and give glory to you, more blessing to others, and more joy in pursuing your promise to lift me up. In Jesus' name, amen.